Amen. Good morning. Let's remain standing. We customarily do around here in honor of God's word. John chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in the first uh, verse. And uh, we encourage you to... to, uh, to go to our website, gracepointvaldosta.com, to, to my website, uh, daleyoung.net, not now while I'm talking, but uh, you'll find a lot of, lot of resources there that will benefit you, that will help you, and uh, share that with some friends. I know a lot of you are sharing things with, with uh, people. Let's share the gospel with them. Amen. John chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. How many knows that's good advice? Now... There were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, or the best wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. And then verse 11, pay a special attention to this verse. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And manifested, notice this, this is the first sign that Jesus did. Not only was it a miracle, but it was a sign. How many knows a sign points to something? And this is his first miracle, his first sign. And uh, it said that it manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. He had just called his 12 disciples, 12 apostles. And uh, they hadn't seen him do any miracle. Hadn't seen him do anything. Most likely all of them were not present at his baptism service where John baptized him. And then after that, he had picked his disciples, and he now does his first miracle, sign. It's a, it, there are words in the Greek for miracles, and there's a word for sign, and this is a unique word that the Greek language uses here. And uh, it was a miracle, but as we end the story, or end this event, it says it was also his first sign that he was to do. So that's what we want to look at. I'm calling this the wine of his grace. Father, we do thank you for your grace. Lord, we've sung about it this morning. We've experienced it this morning. We thank you that the grace of God for salvation has appeared to all men. I pray that all men would receive that grace that has been freely given to us but cost you everything. We bless you today. We bless you for your word. We pray, God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit that eternal things would be accomplished today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This was chosen by Jesus to be his first miracle. And there's a lot of people, let me tell you, frankly, that wish this was not in the Bible. 
They really do. They wish this was not even in the Bible. Not only is it in the Bible, but this is the very first miracle, first miracle that Jesus performs. How many knows that he had authority over what miracle he was going to perform? He chose this one specifically to be the first one. And uh, it's, it's amazing to me. It's a picture of all that he is. It's a picture of his grace. And it's also a picture, I believe, of what Christianity is all about. But if you were, listen, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, you would not invent his inaugural sign to be a miraculous solution to a social embarrassment. You, you know, you, you would want the first miracle, wouldn't you? You would think to be something just absolutely amazing. For it to be something spectacular, something that really got the people's attention. And what you have here, what we don't have, is we don't have Jesus here walking on the water, which he would later do. We, we don't have Jesus raising the dead. That'd be pretty miraculous, wouldn't it? That'd be a good first miracle to do, but he's not doing that here either. We don't even have him opening, the, opening uh, blinded eyes. But what we have here is, listen, we, we, what we have is Jesus helping a party. To continue, listen, by supplying 150 gallons, 150 gallons of the best wine anybody has ever tasted. Now, if you're trying to figure out where I got 150, you didn't listen when I read the Bible a while ago. We got six water pots. If we split the difference and they're 25, six from 25, okay. 150 gallons of the best wine that any human had ever put to their mouth. Why? Why, why was this his first miracle? Why did he do it this way? How, how does him supplying 150 gallons of wine manifest his glory? This miracle... The Bible says it was a sign. I just told you a sign points to something or maybe to someone. But what is this a sign of? What is this sign pointing to? And why was this the first sign? And why was this the first miracle? This sign, I believe, reveals four things. And number one is a sign of who he came to be. Number two, of what he came to do. Number three, of what he came to offer us. And then lastly, number four, how we can receive it. I believe all of those things are right there in this story. This is not a parable. And most of the time around here, I'm preaching and teaching about Scripture, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the Apostle Paul. But today, we're looking at an event. We're looking at something that, that physically happened something that that happened so so the first one who he came to be and who he was in verse 9 it says that that the master of the feast he's the guy i want you to understand who the, he's called the master of the feast sometimes he's referred to as the lord of the feast he's the the toast master you might hear that word more in our uh social circles in other words he's the guy that's been hired by the bride and groom, or one or the other, or both, he's been hired 
to maintain, listen, in the Jewish culture, weddings didn't last for an hour and then everybody went home. Or two hours and everybody went home. They lasted for days. Most Jewish weddings lasted for a minimum of three days straight. Many of them went seven days straight. Seven days of celebration, of joy, of dancing, of drinking wine, of celebrating the covenant of this man and woman in marriage. And so what we got here is we got the, this master of the feast, the guy that's hired not only to keep all the provision flowing, be like the wedding planner, come on, but he's to keep it fun. He's to keep it where the guests are entertained and not bored. How many can see he blew it big time? Now, I don't know why he blew it. I don't know if he didn't add right. It says that Jesus and his disciples, that's 13 people. Mary's there. Jesus and his disciples are invited. There's revelation in that. They were invited to the wedding. And for this master of the feast to allow the wine to run out, for whatever the reason, miscalculation, misfigured, uh, inappropriate budget, you know, didn't work out the contract with the wine supplier, whatever the deal is, he blew it. I mean, would say it would be a sin for that guy to blow a wedding like this, especially in that Jewish culture. And so, listen, when the wine runs out, the party's over. <laughs> hey, it's over. If you're having a get-together at some social event here, you know, and the wine runs out, I mean, you don't even have to tell people to leave. They're going to start leaving. <laughs> Religious people are really not going to like this service today. <laughs> what, what was Jesus? I mean, why, why, why this? What Jesus came to be, who he really was, and what's revealed here, I believe, is that he's showing that I'm the real master of the feast, that I'm the Lord of the harvest that I'm the master of the banquet. I am the one that is the master of the real feast that is to come. Now, for some people that don't think the Lord does that kind of stuff, Isaiah 25, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Listen to these verses. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. And it says, In this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast, look there, of choice pieces, a feast of wines, on the lees, that means on the dregs, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines, the best wines, different choices, very best wines, what God says at his feast. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering or the overcast or the, or the cloud that covers his people and the veil that it is spread over all the nations. Verse 8, and he will swallow up death forever. Isn't that wonderful? And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That was a prophetic declaration by Isaiah of the new covenant that you and I now live in. It says that 
that we would have joy. You know, Jesus brought joy, but really more than that, he is joy. Nehemiah said the joy of the Lord is what? Is our strength. It's not your joy. I don't care if you feel good or not. I don't even care if you're happy or not. Not that I don't care, but that's not your strength. Because, you see, if that's your strength, that goes up and down. But the joy of the Lord is consistent, constant, unchangeable, immutable, and unmoving. The joy of the Lord. That's your strength. And he didn't come to give you joy. He came to be your joy. Big difference. And so, you know why we miss the joy that accompanies salvation? Because this Bible I just read, salvation will be accompanied by joy. Not just casual joy, extreme, off the chain, off the chart joy. Christians should be the most joyful beings on this planet. But for most Christians, it's not that way at all. Why do we miss the joy that accompanies salvation? Because we miss grace. This is what the Bible says in Romans 14 and 17. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and what? And joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven. If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is all about in one sentence, that's it. The kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven, when we get born again, is not up there, out there somewhere. It says the kingdom of heaven is within you. Is that right? Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. See, the kingdom of heaven is not some, It's not where you go when you die. <laughs> you know, you used to hear about, I blow you to kingdom come. Kingdom has already come, and it dwells on the inside of every believer. Hallelujah. But the kingdom of heaven is righteousness. If you don't know that you're righteous, see what the kingdom of heaven brings is righteousness. That means that it makes you right with God. That you are so righteous that you have never known sin as far as your spirit, man. That you have become now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are just as righteous now. Not when you die and go to heaven. But you're as righteous now in your born-again spirit as Jesus is. Because the Bible says in 1 John, as he is, so are we now in this world. So you're righteous. How righteous are you? You have a righteousness that's been gifted to you. For the righteousness of God is a gift. It is not something you grow in. You, you, you receive it. You don't achieve it. You, you don't earn it. You receive it as a gift from God. Righteousness is free. If you've been born again, you are righteous. You may not act righteous. You may not look righteous. You might not feel righteous. But you're not declared righteous by your behavior. You're declared righteous by your Savior. You're, de you're declared righteous because that's the gift that God's given you. Now, I'm not saying that behavior don't matter. As soon as I say something like that, I can feel people, I can feel it in the Spirit. I'm not saying that it don't count. Just live anyway. Sin all you want. That's a spirit of stupid. We talk about it a lot. It's like a man and a woman entering into a covenant of marriage. And they stand there and they say, I love you. And the, you know, the, in this death, do us part. Right? And that means, and it's also for better, for worse. For richer, for poorer, and sickness. In other words, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to leave you. Kind of sounds like God when we enter into that relationship with him. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Right? 
And, and the gift he gives us is eternal salvation, not temporary. And so, but just take the marriage picture, which is supposed to be a picture between Christ, the bridegroom, and us, his bride. But he says, you know, when a husband and wife, let's just say somebody got married here in the church, and, they, and, and you know, you, know you, you enter into a covenant before God and these witnesses that you're never going to leave this man, right? No matter what he does, right? And what did she say? I'll never leave you. Sickness, health, rich or poor, doesn't matter. So right after the wedding, somebody that's at the wedding party, you know, in attendance, comes up and says, wow, man, that's great. Now you can sleep with as many women as you want to. Because she just promised you she would never leave you. So you can just sleep with all the women you want to, and she'll never leave you. Man, that's a great deal. How many would say that would be like, okay. Isn't that a spirit of stupid? All right, for people to accuse preachers like me, of saying when I preach the grace of God, that I'm telling people that they can just go out and sin all they want to, that's the same thing, Taterhead. <laughs> same thing. See, what you don't factor in is the reason you can't factor it in correctly because you have a religion. Amen. Your relationship now, by your very question or accusation, is based on law, rules, and regulations. See, what you don't factor in is all us in here, we actually love God. We're in love with our bridegroom. We're his wife. We don't want to do that no more. We're not interested in that no more. Our heart is with one. Our heart is with one person, and that's the Lord Jesus. Oh, yeah, I mess up every now and then, but it ain't like it used to be. I don't enjoy sin. I'm not as good at it as I used to be. When you know that you're righteous, the kingdom of heaven, righteous, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When you know that you're right with God, that he's not angry with you, nor will he ever be. That as far as you and his child, he's always 24-7 pleased with you. He's, he's always pleased with you. I didn't say he's always pleased with every little thing you do, but he's pleased with you. He loves you unconditionally forever. He will never, ever be angry with you or anyone else ever again. He promised it in his word. Most Christians do not know what I've just said. But when you know you're right with God, that he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will never be angry. When you know that your sin is no longer a barrier between you and God. Because why? Because there is none. Because Jesus was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Not yours only, but the sin of the world. And when you know that that doesn't even exist, God says, I will not remember their trespasses, their sins against them anymore. I will remove them as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered against them anymore. When you know that you are really, truly, no, no kidding, no religion, no faking it, you are right with God. You know what that results in? Peace. I have peace with God, and I have the peace of God. I have a peace that is beyond your ability to understand. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. If you want peace that surpasses understanding, stop trying to understand everything. And when storms arise in your life, and they will, and you are asleep in the bow of the boat, and you have so much peace from God that you are asleep 
while outside there is a storm raging. And the religious church folks that go to your church are all writing out their last will and testaments. They're all putting on the life vest. They're all planning their funerals. And one of them comes, wakes up Jesus and says, don't you care that we're about to die? Oh, what an oxymoron question to ask the one who cared more than any, anyone. Cared so much that he would lay his life down. And you're going to ask him, don't he care? Oh, that's why he's here. And, and he wasn't fake sleeping like you heard in church, just trying to see what they'd do. He was asleep because the Bible don't lie. It says he was asleep. didn't say he was pretending to sleep. said he was asleep. And he went to the bow of the boat, and this is what he said. What's the first word out of his mouth? Peace. Peace. He didn't pray to God and ask God to do something. He didn't beg God to do something. He knew he carried an authority from God on the inside of him. He had peace on the inside. He had real peace on the inside. Not peace like the world gives, but the peace of God that only God gives. He had a peace on the inside. Therefore, he could speak out of his mouth through faith, and it could affect the outside. It could do something to the storm. It could do something to the problems that they were coming against him. And so he says, peace, and then he makes a command, be still. See, you got to talk to the storm and stop talking to God about your storm. You got to speak to the mountain and stop speaking to God about the mountain. You got to speak to the disease, speak to the problem. You got a God that's given you authority. Notice Jesus never did. Oh, God, would you do something about this storm? Would you help a brother out? Jesus said, peace be still. And they were amazed because what happened? It worked. The wind ceased. The storm stopped. Well, that was Jesus. Yeah, who lives in you? Jesus was not only your savior, he was your prototype. He was your example. He was trying to teach you what to do when storms come. See, the reason, well, I spoke to storms and it don't work, that's because you ain't got real peace. You don't really believe the peace you claim. If you want authority to speak to the storm, you got to have the peace that will cause you to sleep through the storm. Religious people will get really angry when you don't freak out like they do. When you don't pace and stay up all night and worry and drug and do whatever you need to do to try to get some peace. But you just simply trust God. And storms will come. Problems will arise. But you trust God that he is a good, good father. That that's who he is. And when you have that peace... When you know you're right with God, and you know you're at peace with God, and you have the peace of God, you know what that, that equals joy. Righteousness plus peace equals joy. And I'm talking about joy that is your strength, because it's the joy of the Lord. It's joy in your salvation. Let me tell you something. Jewish people know how to throw down a party. Now, you, listen to me. Jesus is a Jewish man in a Jewish culture, at a Jewish wedding. And he is there because he was invited. All these pictures you see of Jesus, stoic, actually look like he's on drugs, hair long, just gazing, look glassy-eyed. Or either halos behind him, halo on his head, none of that's all that's just crazy. I am thankful that over the last few years, 
that people are start artists and all are portraying a smiling Jesus, a happy Jesus, a Jesus that has joy. One time, it's in the book of Luke, disciples were sent out, the 70 were sent out with authority to preach the gospel, cast out devils, all this stuff. They come back and said, even the demons are, you know, subject to us. The Bible says, with a loud voice, Jesus rejoiced greatly, with great joy. In the Greek, you know what it meant that he did? It meant that he spun around wildly, just like that right there. That's what it means. It means that he leaped. It says, he, in the Greek, he leaped for joy. That's kind of different than that stoic Jesus that always goes around and just monotone, bless you, bless you. Just stupid. Jesus was a real guy. He was a real guy. You think Jesus danced, Brother Dale? <laughs> I know he did. Probably jumped up there and did a split like I used to do in the 70s. <laughs> I asked her on the front row, didn't I? I used to do it. Did I do it, baby girl? If I did it now, you need to call 911. <laughs> I don't know about that dancing preacher. I think you're carrying this thing too far. Well, let's just read Psalm 149 then. Let's read the Bible. Let's see how God thinks about stuff. Psalm 149, verse 1. Y'all didn't have this one, but maybe you can get it quickly. Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Listen, no offense, but there's not one verse in the Bible that says sing the same old song. I'm, listen, by that, I'm not against old songs. I'm not against him. I'm not against anything. I'm not against anything. I'm just telling you what the book says. Why sing a new song? Because it doesn't take any effort to sing an old song. But if it's a new one, you've got to think about what you're singing. My wife knows that out, out of 37 years of marriage, I mean, I, I very seldom in the, in the last probably 10 years, Probably in the last 10 years, I've, not, I've never bought her a card, Hallmark or any other mark. And I'm not saying you're wrong for doing that. I'm just telling my story, okay? But what she knows, I've always told her, is nobody else that don't know her, that's never looked into those eyes, that's never been kissed by those lips, that's never been held in her arms, nobody is able to put down the words that will suffice what I need to say to that woman. That's the way I feel too, bro. <laughs> now, I don't mean this, you know, whatever. We were out with some friends last night and something come up about that. And I said, yeah, and I'm, you know, she's working now and her little, little real estate lady and, and she's gone now all the time. She's gone a lot. I, you know, she's gone. And, and that's, for, that's new for me. For 35 years of marriage, she's never been gone. She's always been home. And I'm missing the fool out of her. <laughs> Brother ain't doing good. I've actually had a couple of days I'm kind of like angry. I feel not at her. I'm just mad. I'm just, I don't like this. And uh, that's just the truth. And so last week, I, we got some roses in the yard. And, man, I mean, they were two beautiful pink roses came up. Just bloom, blossom. Man, they were beautiful. So after she left that day, I was looking at them. So I took my cell phone and took a picture of them, you know. And uh, so I mailed it to her. You know, I said, that rose is so pretty. It's got to have a poem with it. And so I did a report. I don't have thing memorized, but I just said, you know, roses are red and sometimes they're pink. And I said something about, you know, I want to write you a poem, but I had to really think. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. 
<laughs> I told you it wasn't great. <clears throat> but I sent it to her. Man, she loved that thing. She loved that poem. She'll keep that thing till ever. Yeah. That's how you're supposed to feel about Jesus. That's how you're supposed to feel about Jesus. This ain't a church religious thing. Oh, I got to go to church. That may be like me. I got to go home. Or be like me, like, come on, guys, some of the men in church. Brothers, I just need prayer. What do you need, Pastor? I need y'all to pray for me that I'll discipline myself because I really need discipline here, that I will read the Bible, that I will, you know, let me do it this way. Brothers, pray for me. For what, Pastor? That I'll discipline myself to go home to be with Jill, that I will be with her, you know, and I tell you, when I get off from work, I just want to go somewhere with a man. I want to go to the last place I want to go home. Y'all just pray that I'll discipline myself to be a good husband, that I'll go home, spend time with her, be intimate with her, you know, just be with her. Would y'all pray for me? What do you think those men are going to think about my marriage? Well, his dude's in trouble, right? Why do you want to do that about church and Jesus? How many times have I heard Christians say, well, you pray with me, Pastor, I need to discipline myself to read the Bible. Oh, so you have to be disciplined to read love letters from God to you. If you have to be disciplined, you know what you see? You see a book of rules. You are law-minded. Bible ain't something you enjoy. It's something you take like Jared taught. I got that down. Now maybe the Lord will help me today. Let's go out and face the world. I mean, it's just dumb. A real believer that's in love with Jesus never needs any encouragement to pray, to read the Bible, to attend church, to worship, to give, none of that. That is only for people <laughs> that are not right in their relationship with God. I got all that out of one for Psalm 149. One. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise in the assembly of saints. Notice it ain't the assembly of sinners. It's not an assembly of sinners. We're just sinners saved by grace, Brother Dale. No, some popsicle told you that at the church of the first dead. <laughs> you are no longer a sinner by identity when you become born again. You are at that moment a saint. Well, I'm not trying to be a saint or anything. We can tell. How about trying it for a while? Because that's what you are. Let, us, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise him with the dance. Ernest T. Bass. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and the harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. You're supposed to lay in your bed at night so full of joy, you just bust off singing loud. Freak out your spouse. What's wrong with you? I've got joy. That was so good. Psalm 150, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. I have to pause here and say, how in the world people go to church, to a church that tells them they can't even have a musical instrument in it? Not only is that dumb, but the people that will go to that haven't read the Bible. A piano is a stringed instrument. Get some music in there. 
Glory to God. Get some instruments. God loves it. That's why God made them. He said, praise me with the loud cymbals. Brother beating the drum ain't supposed to play around. Hit them cymbals hard. He said, the loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Even if your breath is bad, baby, praise God with it. Gator breath, no breath, morning breath. Praise God. If you got breath, get your praise on. Let everything that has breath praise ye the Lord. He is worthy of the praise. Man. Number two, point number two, he shows us what he came to do. Mary says they have no wine. And this is how he says it. Woman, my hour has not yet come. Now, a lot of people don't like that in the Bible because it seems like Jesus is being abrupt and kind of harsh to Mary. Let me tell you, he is. He is. There's no other way you can paint it. If my mom sitting on the second row came up to me and says, you know, you know Dale, son, and I said, woman, I, my time's not, you know, you can't, you can't make that look better than it is. The NIV tried. The NIV, they put in there, dear woman. <laughs> nice try, NIV translators, but it ain't in the Greek, baby. It ain't in there. They just added that, just trying to soften it up for their, Jesus is being mean. We can't let him be portrayed like that. We've got to throw a dear woman in there. Ain't no deer in there. Just says woman. Most say it means he changed his mind. In other words, woman, my time has not come, one translation says. And then later on, I guess his time came because he did something. That's kind of schizo. Like, my time hadn't come. Don't bother me. And then like five minutes later, well, I guess time's here now. I believe I'll do something. That's how a lot of you have heard it preached. That's what you're, well, you know, because Mary, Mary calls it to be his time. Mary can't cause nothing. God's working off a plan. This is God here in the flesh. This, this ain't some plaything. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. He, he's not fickle. He's not just, this is God. He's, he's got a plan. This is his first sign, his first miracle. This is not haphazard. That doesn't fit. Well, what was it then, Pastor? Well, I think we have the answer in Jesus' own words. Because regardless of the translation you got, this is what it says in the King James, New King James, this is what it says in the Greek. My hour, he didn't say my time has not come, he says my hour. My hour has not come. I mean, those hours different in time. An hour is time, but it's not all time, it's just one hour. So what do you think about, if you're single especially, if you're a single person, man or woman, but if you go to a wedding, what do you think about? Especially if you're single. You think about the possibility of your future wedding one day, right? You think about, will I ever have a wedding? Will we spend this much money? Or, or more than this, or not this? Or, you know, how will we do it? Will we do our flowers like they have theirs? Will we have our candles like this? Or, you know, so you try to pick up all the ideas you can. But you're listen, you're thinking about, really, your own wedding. While you're waiting on the wedding to proceed or whatever. But you, it's very easy. Listen, it's very easy for you to think about the wedding. Your wedding. Not just weddings in general. Your wedding. And uh, Jesus is doing, I believe, and I think I can prove it to you from Scripture, that he's doing the same thing. He's there. He is single, but this ain't got nothing to do with him looking for a wife. But it has everything to do with him looking for a wife. 
Listen to me. His mind is on something else. He's thinking of his own wedding. God does not want, listen, to relate to us as a king to servants. Not just as a shepherd to sheep, but as a husband to a bride. Bridal language is throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, and it completely covers the Old Covenant. He is the bridegroom. That's why he identifies himself. And so the Bible is filled with this bridal, passionate imagery and language. John said one time, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. Remember John the Baptist? He said, he's the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. Revelation 21 and 2, he says, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, ordained for her, ordained for her husband, adorned for her husband. Revelation 19 and 7, let us be glad, rejoice, give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, his wife has made herself ready. Revelation 22, 17, one of the last verses in the Bible, it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Spirit and the bride. What's he thinking about? When she comes to him and says they have no wine, I believe that why he turned to her abruptly and said, my hour is not yet come, because his mind was somewhere else. He was thinking about his wedding. He was thinking about what it would cost him to provide wine for his bride. That's why the abrupt response to, to his mother and what he says is, my hour has not yet come. He is saying to his mother, it is not time for me to die yet. My hour has not yet come. This language is throughout the New Testament. In John 17, this is one of the last few words we have of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And in, John, in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Notice the same language. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. He's about to go to the cross, and he says that, he tells him in another place that Satan, he, he's going to get his hour. Darkness is going to have his hour. But he said, I'm going to have eternity. How would he provide it? By six water pots, they have their ceremonial cleaning, 25 gallons approximately apiece in these pots. And so these pots are there for cleansing. Now, probably out of six of them, they didn't have but maybe one or two that even had water in them. These are stone pots. That's important. And they're used for ceremonial cleansing. What kind of cleansing? They would, they would dip in there, and they would wash their hands before they ate. So as the guests came, they would have been out, you know, in the, in the, the world, and, they, would, they, and they, they felt it would be unclean. They got mad at Jesus one time when his disciples were breaking ears of corn and eating them. And they said, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Jesus like, you religious people, your, your water doesn't cleanse you. Now listen to me, Get the, don't miss the message. The Ten Commandments were wrote in what? Stone. So here we have stone water ponds. And so you can try all you want to to keep the law, but it will never make you clean. It won't cleanse you no matter how much you use it. In Luke 22 and verse 20, we read this last Sunday when we took communion. Jesus held up the cup. Everybody say cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He kept talking over and over about the cup, the cup. One time the disciples, you know, said, James and John, we want to be one on your right and one on your left in the kingdom. 
He said, can you drink of the cup that I got to drink from? Can you drink of this cup? He kept talking about this cup. And when he got in the garden of Gethsemane, wrestling in prayer, to his sweat, water became blood. He said, Father, let this cup be taken away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He was in agony, it said, in that garden. He was always talking about this cup. That's how he would provide it. Number three point is what he comes to offer us. What does the Bible continually characterize his salvation as? Often we see these phrases. His salvation is characterized by joy and wine and heaven as a feast. Matthew, this is the NIV version. Matthew 8 and 11 of the NIV says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven is a feast. The kingdom is a feast. It's not like a feast, it is a feast. And then Psalm 34, remember that verse? This in Psalm 34, it says, taste and see. Taste and see. You know why a lot of people can't see, really see what we're talking about? They've never tasted of the Lord. They've tasted of church, religion, law, but not of Jesus. Because if you taste of the Lord, and it, it, listen, this terrifies some church folks because this is sensory. This is not ideological head knowledge. How, how are you, listen, how are you going to explain the difference between the colors blue and red to a person born blind? What about the task of you trying to explain to a blind person who has never seen the light of day, but you, you, your task is to explain to them the differences in the colors and hues of red and blue? Sound like an easy job? That is my job trying to explain salvation and its joy and its peace to people that have never actually tasted of Jesus. How are you going to know what banana pudding tastes like if you ain't never seen a banana, had a banana, held a banana, nor tasted of a banana? You, you don't know. You can go out on a circuit teaching on banana pudding, but you ain't never even had a banana. All you're doing is putting up pictures of banana pudding. You don't even know what you're talking about. Y'all know I ain't talking about banana pudding, don't you? Taste of the Lord and see. See, when you taste, you'll see. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve tasted of the wrong tree? And as soon as they tasted, listen to what it says, their eyes were opened. Well, what were they? Were they blind before? I mean, could they see that? Yeah, they, the Bible said that they saw the tree. They saw it. And they saw its fruit. And they saw that it was pleasant and good and pleasant to the eyes and, and, and to be desired. Is that what the Bible says? They saw it. So they have natural vision. But when they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their spiritual eyes were opened. Now listen, God made Adam and Eve perfect in the garden. Listen, but he did not give them spiritual eyes. He wanted their spiritual eyes to come from their partaking of the tree of life. When they partook of him, which is Jesus, the tree of life, then they would walk in spiritual openness. But they never got there. They never got there. Because Satan lied to them and they believed lies. And listen, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is more than, in other words, what happened is Adam and Eve chose to be their own God and that they themselves would now decide what is good and evil. 
See, that's the whole thing, that man now decides what's good. And he calls evil good and good evil. Man becomes God. And that was the, the lie that they bought into, that you can be God. You don't need him. You can be your own God. You can decide what's good and what's evil, and what's right, what's holy, what's acceptable. That's what they did. And their eyes were opened. And what's the first thing they saw? Themselves. Their nakedness. And from that point to this day, man has been focused on himself. Self-centered. Self-righteous. Self-focused. It's all about self. Every marriage difficulty is because somebody in that marriage has become selfish. You cannot have marriage problems without a selfish person in the mix. And so their eyes were on themselves. But when you get born again by the grace of God, your eyes are no longer looking at yourself. You're not navel-gazing. You're Jesus-gazing. You're fixed your eyes upon Jesus. You're looking to the author and the finisher of your faith. You're, you're a Christ-conscious not sin conscious. You go to some churches, all they talk about, sin, sin, sin. Focus on sin. It's Jesus conscious. It's not Christ conscious in most people's eyes. They're, they're focused on themselves. Let me examine myself and see how I do. We just took communion last Sunday. Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me. Most churches do it in remembrance of their sin. By the way, which they don't even have no more. Because God took away the sin of the world. Does that mean people are not sinning? I didn't say that. But he took away sin between himself and the world. He's not angry anymore. And listen, and even sinners are forgiven. They haven't received the benefit of that forgiveness. But as far as God's side, the Bible says God was in Christ. And he reconciled the sins of the world unto himself. God said, I did something about it. In the old covenant, he did get angry. In the old covenant, he was angry with sin. But in that old covenant, he made a promise of this new covenant that would come. And he said, I promise you, I will never, ever be angry with you ever again. So anybody that preaches, portrays, or proclaims an angry God is a liar. Just that plain. They are lying to you. They may be doing it not intentionally, but they're lying nonetheless. They are impugning the name and the righteousness, because Jesus Christ, his blood was an overpayment for sin. He took away. He didn't cover it. He took away sin of the world. Man, when I've got a hold of that in the New Testament, New Covenant changes everything. I don't want to sin, but I'm forgiven. Now, that what I've just said. If, you, if you've been raised around law, mixed religion, you're going, that guy's preaching heresy. No, you ain't read your Bible. It's right in there over and over and over again. I was reading something somebody sent, you know, posted on Facebook. Yes, they always post stuff. Posted on Facebook. You know, your prayers, your prayers are blocked. Jesus said that your prayers are blocked. And then they quoted, you know, if you don't forgive others, neither will your father forgive you. And then they plastered out. And this is, a, this is a national speaker, even if not worldwide, but at least national. I think he's international. And because he says it, it carries more weight than what Brother Dale says. But Brother Dale ain't talking his word. I'm talking the word of God. And so he reaches into the red letters. But when Jesus was preaching law to them under the law, and he tries to make you believe now that God's holding your sin against you. God tells you to forgive people, not hold their sin, and yet we accuse God of doing the same thing. 
God says, I'm holding my sin against you. And, and you're not forgiven until you ask me to you're, you, 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 you tell me you're sorry. And I tell you, you better make it good and I better see some tears. But if it ain't sincere repentance, I might not forgive you. How do you know you're forgiven? Did you cry enough? Was you contrite enough? Was you brokenhearted enough? Did you make him a lot of promises? God, if you'll forgive me, I won't do this no more. <laughs> that means they ever tried that one. How'd that work out for you? I thought so. There's only one thing that causes God to forgive, and he's only did it one time. Without the shedding of blood, holy, spotless, sinless, righteous blood, by the way, there is no forgiveness of sin. Who's the only person that shed that kind of blood? Jesus. When did he do it? 2,000 years ago. Has he shed any since then? Have we put him back on the cross last week? Then he ain't forgave nobody last week. Because nobody can get forgiveness unless blood is shed. When's the last time he shed blood? He did it once. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a clue. He ain't coming back to do it again. Did it once and for how many? All. That includes folks in church this morning. And that includes folks in the world that ain't ever going to church. But God said, I forgive the world of their sin. And I'm not angry. And I told y'all to preach now the ministry of reconciliation. And what I want you to do is go out to this world and tell them that I'm not angry and that I love them. And that I have forgiven all the world of their sin. And I want them, and you tell them this, be reconciled to their father. Because he ain't mad at you. And the source of your pain and your trauma and your, all that you've gone through, it is not him paying you back for your sins. His son took every penalty and pain for all of our sins on the cross. God's not punishing his son for your sin and then you on top of it. That would be unfair, unholy, and unjust. You said that last week, Brother Dale. I'm going to say it again next week if you want to come hear it. You're not invited to a lecture, to a sermon, to a theological teaching, but you're invited to a feast. And so Jesus offers a wine, a feast, not just a teaching. He offers you, listen, when he does say, I'm your shepherd, that makes me, when he says, I'm the shepherd, you know what that means? I'm his sheep. When, when, when he says, I'm the bridegroom, that makes me his wife. I know it's hard for you, sir, to realize that you're a bride, but you is. Get used to the dress, baby. You are the wife of Christ. To, to us, to the bride, in other words, no matter how ugly our sin has been, no matter how deep we've been in sin, no matter to the depth of the bondage of sin or witchcraft or demonization or drugs or whatever it was that tried to get his tentacles into us, when God clothes you with that garment, which is his righteousness, you are forever and eternally from that moment beautiful. In the sight of God. You are clean. You are righteous and you are holy. Number four. How do you receive it? You have to admit that you're out. That you're empty of wine. That your wine is not enough. And, and, and listen, you can't say this to God. How about topping me off? I mean, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I'm about 70% good. And so how about topping me off with a little Jesus? Ain't no topping you off. You can't help. Your goodness, your righteousness is just filthy rags. Is that what the Bible says? So you have to admit that you have no wine. So in the story of the bridegroom here, the bridegroom got credit for what Jesus did. 
In other words, the master of the feast goes and tells the bridegroom, and he brags on him. He says, man, most people save the, you know, the, the inferior wine to last, but you saved the best for last. And he just brags on him. And so, you know, uh, the bridegroom is just like, well, thank you. He didn't do that. He got a credit. Listen, he got accredited to his account what Jesus did. Can somebody say grace? Somebody say grace. You, you get accredited to your account. Me and you, the righteousness of what Jesus did. Uh, this tells me other things in this, and I don't have time. I'm just going to pick a couple, and, and we're going to close. What, what does this story say? What does it say about Jesus? What do, he, he decided that this will be my first miracle, and this will be a sign to everybody that will be spiritual by the wisdom of the Spirit to see who I am, what I came to be, what I came to do, how I would provide for my wife, my bride, and how she could receive it. You, you, you just have to say, I'm, I, I'm helpless and hopeless without you. I have no wine. I have no righteousness to offer you. See, being a believer, believing in Jesus is the most humbling thing because you surrender everything. You just say, I've got nothing to offer you. I'm not a pretty good person. Listen, because it's not about good and evil. It's about God. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. But listen, I just want to tell you this. What does this, what does this event tell us about God? I'm just going to pick a couple of them. I, I wrote down too many. It, it, this is what it tells you. Listen to me, because somebody needs this. You can go to God with little things. Some of you don't pray about things because you think God don't care. And if God don't care about the little things that you're praying about, that means God don't care about you because I care about everything that woman cares about. I, I do. He would use his power to help you with little things. No wine is not really a huge problem. So what? You run out of wine. Close the wedding down let's go home. That ain't what Jesus did. Jesus said, no, we're not going to close this down. This is a sign. I decided to do this as a sign to the church and to the world of what I am and who I am and what I come to do. So, no, we, see, it's not like we've got a dead child laying here. Use your power, raise the dead child. No, we don't have a dead child. We don't even have a blind person. We just have a party that's just, you know, you know go, go, go bad. And Jesus said, I'm not going to let the party go bad. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to provide 150 gallons I don't know if you've ever seen 150 gallons, but that's a whole lot of wine. He didn't like hand them one bottle. When you, another thing it tells you is when you, like Mary, didn't get an immediate answer or response that you wanted from Jesus when you pray, don't give up, don't get mad. And just wait and, and, and take Mary's advice. Whatever he says to you to do, do it. Because he's going to say something. It may not be right then. It may not even be tomorrow or tonight. But he's going to say something. And whatever he says, just wait and trust him and obey him. Another thing it tells you, listen to me. No, no, please don't miss this. You've got to co-labor with God. Now, see, some of you pray for miracles, and you, listen to me. Don't miss this. You'll never see a miracle. In other words, if you can receive this, there is no gift of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 of the working of, of, of miracles. There's only the gift of the working of miracles. So, in other words, if you want to see a miracle, you're going to have to work one. I know you're having to think about it. Bless your heart. 
All through the Bible, you won't find miracles unless man is participating, co-laboring with God. You lose the axe head in the river, and that's the only one you got? Elisha, then you're going to have to cut down a stick, throw it in the water. I don't know if you've lost the axe head in the river before, but throwing a stick in the river don't make the axe head float to the surface and just float there until you reach and pick it up. I don't know that when you're Moses and you come up to a, an oasis and you've been three days without a drink of water and you got a couple of million people ready to kill you and you finally see water and it's not drinkable and you go to God and say, what do I do about this bitter water? He says, see that tree over there? Yeah, cut it down, let it fall into the water. All of those are types and shadows of the cross and of Jesus. And that tree falls into the water and all of a sudden the water is sweet and drinkable. That's what Jesus will do. He'll make your bitter water sweet. He'll make your life sweet. He, he'll do it. And all through the Bible. So listen to me. Now, please don't miss this. You probably hadn't heard this before, but I'm not just telling you a tale. So they go fill these water pots up. Another thing this tells you, listen to me. When God tells you to do something or gives you a task or gives you a call or gives you a ministry or whatever, and, and I don't mean something you do at the church and on the campus of the church. I'm talking about to be a mom to a baby or a dad to kids or a grandparent or whatever it is. Whatever you do, whatever you, because a Christian does not have a secular life. Well, I have my secular job. That's a lie. You've been told that lie too. That's, that's, you don't have secular money, secular life, secular job, secular nothing if you're a born-again believer. Your whole life is sacred before God. That's the truth. But we've been lying. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not in the ministry. You, you all in the ministry of reconciliation. God's given you all that. But what I'm trying to tell you is that if whatever you're going to do for God, he told them, to, he told them listen, feel. Everybody say feel. Feel the, 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 the stone jars with water. And the Bible says this. I love this. And they filled them to the brim. Now, every now and then my wife pours me a glass of tea or something. All our marriage, I have told her, Crawford Miller, I've told her she'll pour it and she'll leave about that much space to the bottom. I don't know, all these women do this. I don't know why they do that. Because they dealt with kids and they're always spilling it. And I still spill stuff. Now mainly on my shirt. I don't know what it is now. It's just the way it is. But I'll always say, I say, she'll stop it off. By, I'll say, fill it to the top. I'm a big boy. How many times you heard that, baby girl? Hundreds. I said, fill it to the top. I'm a big boy. I want it full. I want it to the top. I don't want it to, I want it full. You might not be passing this way again. <laughs> I want it full. And the Bible said they filled it to the, to the brim. Fill it to the brim. Whatever you're going to do for God, do it to the full. Don't half-heartedly do anything. Go fill it. And if you're in, 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 a, in a job you hate or vocation you hate, then change vocations. Get something that you can do with your heart. Work shouldn't be a prison sentence. Come on now. The Bible says he told them to fill it, and then he told them to draw some out now. Now, most of you, this is what you believe, I think. You believe that we got these six jars of stone jars, and they, they fill them to the brim, to the full, with water. And then Jesus comes over and goes, abracadabra, kaboom, be wine. And then all of a sudden, we got six jars full of wine, fragrant wine coming out. And they're all looking like, my, that's just a beautiful color, and you know, and you know, whatever. No, it's not what the Bible says. They filled it with water. And then Jesus looks to his servants and says, draw some. He used one word to put the water in, fill. And then he used another word, draw, to take it out. 
Now he says, draw some of the water out. Draw some out now and take that and carry it to the master of the feast. And see, because it, listen, it doesn't take any faith to go to a, a thing full of 25 gallons of beautiful, fragrant, aromatic wine and dip in and carry that to the guy. You can do that with no faith, with just whatever. But it takes tremendous faith to go over and look in and still see water. And he tells you to reach in, draw some out, and it's water, and carry that to the master of the feast. And somewhere in your walking, it becomes wine. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Word teaches. Now, that will be no different than when he will feed the 5,000 fish and chips. And his name ain't Captain D's, you know what I'm talking about? But when they bring them little fishes and loaves to him, most of the religious church thinks he goes abracadabra. And now we got this big mound up here piled up of fish. And over here we got these mounds of bread. And the disciples are jockeying back and two up here. You know, no, no. The Bible says that Jesus took the bread and he looked up. Because when you've not been handed enough to pay your bill, and your bill is $5,000 and somebody just handed you $5, and said, God told me to give you that. Instead of you having a grumbling, griping, bitter, complaining heart with lack of faith, because you're moved by what you see, then what you do is you take that, and Jesus wasn't playing church, y'all. He looked up. Why look up? Because all the blessings come from that. Everything. Lift thine eyes unto the hills of Zion, which cometh thy help, for thy help cometh from the Lord. Lift up. See, and then when you look up first, and then look down, Upon that $5, it looks like $5 million now instead of $5. Because now you're seeing it through faith and the inexhaustible supply of his grace in his kingdom. And so then he blessed it, he broke it, and this is what he said, he gave it to his disciples. And they gave to the people. So where did the miracle happen? In their hands. Please don't miss this revelation. Where would the miracle of multiplication happen? In your hands when you go to do what God tells you. You're going to have to have faith to walk with water, knowing by the time you get there it's going to be wine. you got to have uh, faith to know that you just got a little piece of fish and a little piece of bread, but by the time you get to that, he made them sit down in companies of 50. Then when they got there, you'll be able to feed all 50 of them. You know how to run back because it will multiply in your hands. That's the miracle. See, I want you to hold your hands out. Just pacify me. Hold, look at your hands. That's where the miracle God's called some of you to do some amazing things. Amazing things. Amazing things. Your hands are so talented, so gifted. You'll use those hands. If you will use those hands, you'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. That's the Bible. That's the New Testament. You, you'll use those hands to feed the poor, to clothe the naked. You'll use those hands just to encourage somebody. I'll just pat somebody and say, man, I love you. You'll just use those hands. And I know you feel like all you got to offer somebody is water. But you got so much more than that. You got so much to offer people. And if you'll just believe in God who is sending you, by the time you get there, that water will be wine. That bread will be a banquet meal. It's always that way. And sometimes, you know, the Bible says that we're to, it says that we're to look at the harvest. And he says the harvest fields are ripe and ready right now. Right now. That's what he says. I'm about done. Come on. Give me a minute. I'm about done. He said the harvest will. But we look around and we go, we don't see no harvest. Because you missed what he said. He said, lift thine eyes. Lift thine eyes 
Look upon the fields, for they are ripe unto harvest. What did he say? Same thing with the fish. If all I do is have my head down like this and I look up at the world, I do not see a harvest field. I see people that don't care, mean, whatever. But if I first look up and I look in the eyes of my Father, I look in the eyes of my Savior, and from looking at Him, then I look upon the world. I see a field that's white under harvest. I see a field that's ready to be harvested. I see people that need the message of grace. They need to be told that God loves them, that he's not angry with them, that he's already forgiven all the sin of the world. And he wants them to enjoy the benefit of that, that they'll enjoy the benefit by coming. But Brother Dale, when we get saved, do we have to ask God to forgive you? You won't find it in the scripture. You'll find it in the churches, but you won't find it in the Bible. When the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, bow your head, say the sinner's prayer, because there is no sinner's prayer. Because in God's eyes, you're not a sinner anymore. I'm not saying you hadn't sinned. That's why he came, because there was sin problem. But he's already took care of it. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Not sins, plural, verb. Sin, singular, noun. Go to our podcast, listen to the sermon. Sin is a noun. Grace is a verb. You receive this word today? Would you give God praise for it as we stand? Stand all over the place. I hope you saw something in the wedding at Cana of Jesus turning water into wine like you've never seen before. I pray you've seen the grace of God. You remember in the old covenant in Egypt, one of the plagues was that the Nile River, the water was turned to blood, and it brought death, disease, suffering. And it sure didn't bring joy. It brought sadness. But you know, when Jesus came, if you look at John chapter 1, it says the law was given by Moses. But then it sets at contrast and paradox. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Moses gave the law. But Jesus came to be grace and to be truth. Because he's all that. Full of grace. Full of truth. And so, there's a big difference today. Now, Water is turned to wine. And when Jesus sees this miracle, what he acted out in front of our eyes, he said the day will come because water's been turned to blood. But I see my cup of the new covenant. When he saw the wedding toast, he saw that well, there would be a day that's going to cost me everything to purchase the wine that will bring joy to my wife. I'm so thankful that Jesus was willing to go to the cross and to shed his blood so that we could, he says, at that communion supper, that Passover supper, remember when he held up the cup and he said these words, he said, I will no longer drink of this with you now, but I will drink it with you again when we become at the marriage of the Lamb. Because he was drinking the cup of judgment, the cup of the wrath of God, the wrath of God being poured out he said, this is not a time for me to drink in celebration. But he says, when I see you again, I'll have wine in the cup. And it will not be the wine of sorrow and judgment, but it will be the wine of joy, of the new kingdom of God. Jesus said that if you want this new wine, you've got to be a new wineskin. Because the new wine goes into the new wineskins. The new covenant goes into new born-again believers. It's better than the old covenant, no matter what they tell you. Do you receive it? If you don't know the Lord today, 
if you don't really know that, you know, I'm right with God. I've received Jesus, which makes you right. I'm not asking you to feel right. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made righteous. And that will result in peace, which will result in tremendous joy. I wish just somebody, y'all, would kind of reflect that joy. If there's any in there somewhere, how about smiling at me so I'll feel like there's some joy in the house. Would you just smile or let, let me see some ex- sign that there's joy. Notify your face that you're joyful. How about that? How about that? Notify your face. Okay. Okay. You're doing good. Oh, them's pretty teeth, pretty smiles. Okay. Carry that joy to this world. Ministry team, would you come? I'm going to dismiss your church. I love you. We love to preach the grace of God around here. If you don't need prayer, then you can go. But if you want prayer for any reason, hey, we're standing up here to pray with you and for you, and we love you, okay? You come this way, and we want to pray with you and for you. Amen? We release your church. If you want prayer, don't leave. Come this way. We'll spend all the time that, that, uh, that you need. We'll be glad to pray with you. God bless you. We love you.